So also in this anger series, we did a message the next week on the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger. Then we looked at how to repent of covert anger, which is kind of hiding on the inside, overt anger on the outside. Today, we're going to look at the idea, the idea of anger towards oneself. That comes up. We want to theologically look at that. Next week, we'll look at the idea of can we actually be angry towards God? Then we'll end this series with ministry and discipleship towards those that are angry. Like, how do we actually minister to those um, in this? So we're going to talk about this idea today of anger towards oneself. Have you ever done something in life that later on you kept revisiting and saying like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I quit that job and went over here because it was a terrible mistake. Can't believe that I dated that person. And man, that was, that was bad. Can't believe that I said that to this person. And, and it ruined our friendship. We're no longer friends. I mean, have you ever had that kind of where you keep revisiting? You're just like that kind of, you're just angry with the decisions that you made. There's this regret. Anybody like that? Anybody ever had that? Maybe I'm the only person, uh, but it does exist. What should a person do with that? Well, I'm so thankful to have the Word of God. It, it helps to guide us, lead us, direct us. Um, and so, now, when talking about this idea of anger itself, it somewhat you have to consider this other idea, which I don't think is a biblical idea, um, but it, it nonetheless floats out there, this idea of self-forgiveness. If, if you've heard any of the psychological language, there's always this idea of like, okay, you have regret in your life. Here's what you got to do. Man, you got to forgive yourself. That's what you hear a lot. Watch enough TV, hear enough psychological jargon, you're going to hear the idea of, well, you just need to forgive yourself. Now, just to kind of throw my cards out on the table, there is theologically nothing about forgiving oneself. That is not something the scriptures deal with because that's not, we are not holy and divine um, that, that we have, that we forgive ourselves in that way. Now, when a person says something like, I, I haven't, you know, I just can't forgive myself, but they may be sometimes trying to address that idea of, I'm angry about something that I've done or something that's happened in life that's unfortunate that I was a part of. I, you know, that, so when someone says that, sometimes that's what's actually the heart of the matter. Or sometimes when the person says, I can't forgive myself and they're, they're angry about something that, that's happened in life that, that they've done. Sometimes they just know they're not a different person yet. There's been several times where I've, I've had people say, I can't forgive myself. I can't forgive myself. I can't forgive myself. And it really is a matter of their conscience is still guilty. Their repentance is not a godly repentance in life yet. They still know they're the same person. They may have an outward worldly form of repentance, which is a change of the outside, but no change of the heart. And some people say, how do you know that your repentance is just something of a change on the outside and not the heart. And I would say, because you take no pleasure in obeying God in it. And so sometimes people, we have worldly repentance, which is we'll change the outward action, but we're really white knuckling it our way through it. And there's really no delight and change of the heart that there's a new life in Christ. So sometimes when people are dealing with this idea of, I can't forgive myself, they're looking back and there's this anger at at self. So how do we deal with this? What's this idea and concept? Now, it's true that we can be angry about what we've done, but many times I think there's not good theology undergirding those thoughts so that we don't run further than what we should with that, right? We can, so because if we just intrinsically think, 
this anger itself is really just me not forgiving myself. We've gone in a theologically rogue route. But if we begin to kind of say some things to ourselves that are essential when we're dealing with that, there might be some theological truths that we're not aware of, we're not rehearsing. Such as, do we see our sin as primarily against God? Do we trust the truth of the scriptures concerning God's grace and forgiveness? Are we really, do we really have a godly repentance? Are we believing the lies that Satan, who is the accuser? Are we unaware of the depth of our sinful nature? Are we chasing a standard of righteousness, of self-righteousness? And it could also be, number seven, that we're not really trusting God's sovereignty in that situation. Ultimately, the solution for all this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I find many times that there's, well, there's a breakdown in our belief about God's holiness, His sovereignty, His grace, forgiveness in our own depraved nature. So let's kind of look at this idea of when someone says, I'm, I'm angry at myself. Remember, sometimes there could be actually really godly guilt. There could be a guilt. Guilt's not wrong. I don't know where we ever got that guilt's wrong. That's one of the things when you talk to our professional counselors, if you have any bit of guilt, sometimes it's kind of like, let's put that aside, let's put that away. But I would go, no, actually, that guilt is a, is a good thing. Guilt brings us to conviction. It, that could be our conscience speaking to us. Guilt's not entirely bad. Now, sometimes guilt could be a false guilt, a guilt that is not resting in the finished work of Christ. For instance, at 16, I came to believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I confess my sinful nature. I've trusted that Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient. And there are sins through my life that I have confessed, that I've repented. I can see a difference in my life. I can see that from a, a, a heart perspective, I don't salivate and love those sins anymore. I'm a different person. And so for me to vi- revisit those and to go, well, I still feel guilty for it. That would be a false guilt in that. Now, if there are things in my life that I've never, there's never been a change of heart and a change of mind, and a, it, then there may be some good guilt there that God has put there for a reason. So sometimes that's why you need the body of Christ. That's why you need brothers and sisters in Christ, because I want to be honest with you. Sometimes in just between our two ears, it's really hard to sift through that. That's why you really need brothers and sisters in Christ that you can talk to that can give you great counsel. So, but let's look at this idea of anger itself. Aside from the idea of, of a guilty conscience that that could actually exist, what could be some other things that we're struggling with when we get to this idea of, I'm, anger, I'm just angry at myself, I'm angry, I regret the decision that I made? Well, one would be this, and I said it a while ago. Sometimes we could be dealing with something as simple as, we don't see sin is primarily against God. That could be our, a big thing. In that moment, we're just not really seeing sin against God. In that moment when we're expressing that, I'm angry at myself. Really, we might just be angry at the circumstances. We might be really angry about the lost opportunity that has happened in our life as a result of the decisions we've made. But really, we've got to see our sin rightly in view of God. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We might be turning to a couple scriptures today. Y'all okay with turning to some scriptures? Y'all got your Bibles or your, or your phone. I know I probably offended everybody earlier by calling it a dumb phone. But I feel like it is making us dumber. Am I the only one that feels that way? Like it's making me dumb. You might be saying, Nick, you're just being too, you're just being too persnickety. I'll, I'll give you the, the solid test, okay? 
How many, how many of us use GPS? GPS, right? Okay, we all use it, right? Have you not noticed that using GPS, you could be going, you could have gone to the same place five times and now you still don't know where it's at. Like you're still programming it in. I do not remember happening. I don't remember, back in the day, like you kind of got there, you remember the landmarks. We don't do that anymore. So I rest my case. We've gotten dumber. Verse 16. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, speaking in relation to Esau. You might want to know the context of that in the background. In the Old Testament, he sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. Here's what it says in verse 16, using his example. That also there be no sexual, immoral, or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For we know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. What did Esau have? Well, he had regret. He was angry. He's angry at the past decisions that he had made. But he didn't have a godly repentance. He really was just upset with the loss of opportunity. He, he didn't like the circumstance that his decisions had brought him to. There was a regret, but there was, there was a unrighteous, there was a God, uh, ungodly sorrow, but not a godly sorrow. There was no godly repentance. There wasn't a change of heart and change of life. He would be descriptive of someone um, who's rebellious against God. Go over to Isaiah chapter 6. A person who may be dealing with this idea of I'm angry itself, they might not have a full vision of who God is in his holiness. Man, you just can't get any better than Isaiah 6 if you ever want to get to an idea of Man, what does it look like when confronted with a holy God? What is the posture a person has? In Isaiah chapter 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. King Uzziah died with the train of his robe filling the temple. Angels, seraphim, stood before him in Isaiah 1-2, each having six wings. Two covered his face, two covered his feet, two cut as he flew. What an, what an awesome sight, right? And then watch what these angels say. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. Each part of the Godhead, the Trinity, is being ascribed to being completely holy. Is Yahweh of hosts. And the whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold of the temple shook at the voice of Him who called out, while the house of the Lord was filled with smoke. And then Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King Yahweh of hosts. So Isaiah sees that God is holy. And what he really sees is his sinfulness in light of the holiness of God. Sometimes when we're dealing with this idea of I'm angry at self. I'm angry about what's happened to me. There might be so much inward focus that we're really not focusing on actually a holy God. We might just be focusing on I just regret that I put myself in an uncomfortable situation in life and I'm constantly revisiting that of, of what I've done and how it's inconvenienced my world to where I'm at. And I would tell you that if there's a turning of the corner where we really see our decisions in light of a holy God, then we're actually walking in a pathway of, of godly repentance. Because look what happens. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from off the altar with tongs. This was the altar where sacrifice happened, where in the Old Testament, sin was being atoned for. 
And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. It's a, it's, of course, the, the altar was pointing to the ultimate altar that Jesus would offer himself on for our sin. So we see here at Isaiah, is like, I've, I've unclean lips. I'm unclean. And he needed to be cleansed by the altar. And for us, it's the same way is that sometimes when we have these regrets, we're angry about, to ourselves about something that, that's inconvenienced us from the past, and we have this fixation that it's dragging us down. It may be that we haven't taken an honest look at how holy God is so that we could see ourselves rightly and then run to his grace for forgiveness. There's so many people running around trying to say, well, I just can't forgive myself. That's an unbiblical concept. Really, what a person needs to do is run to the one that all sin is ultimately really against and get his forgiveness. And when there is his forgiveness, there is a cleansing. Notice in the text that Isaiah can't clean up himself. Take something from outside him. So when we're dealing with the issue of I'm angry about myself, I would say sometimes we got to check ourselves at the door and kind of go, am I actually first seeing that God is holy that I'm not holy? Am I really seeing th- this? I'm, I'm angry about the inconveniences of my life now as a result of my decisions. Instead of really looking at, I, I'm really more upset of how I've sinned against a holy God and what that's done to a holy God. What happens at that point is we now run to him for his grace. Does that make sense? Otherwise, we're just running to ourself for grace. And, and we're not really good people to run to ourselves for grace. We're terrible grace givers. We really are. Um, I mean, we can't even keep our own standards, right? We can't. How do we know we can't keep our own standards? How many diets have we started and failed, right? How many times have we promised ourselves we'll wake up early? We're so unrighteous, we can't even keep our own rules. We're so unrighteous, we can't even keep God's rules perfectly. But there was one who did keep his rules perfectly, who did completely satisfy God's law, and that was Jesus. So that could be that we're not seeing our sin against God primarily, and thus, we've gotten a little off kilter with this, this, this kind of self-focus on, on our own, um, how we're angry about ourselves, angry about things we've done. So that's one. Second could be that we don't really believe the, the truths of Scripture is about God's grace. We really don't believe the truths of Scripture about God's grace. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Such a simple verse, but I tell you, one of the most beautiful verses. If you're kind of thinking, I need to memorize some scripture, I don't know where to start. If you can get this one, man, this is going to take you a long way. There is a lot of mileage out of this scripture right here. This is kind of one of these scriptures that, you know, that, that kind of is like um, you get a lot of miles per gallon when it comes to this scripture. Verse 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Sometimes when we're dealing with this anger itself, we don't really, it could be that, you know, we don't see our sin against God primarily as that against God. But also we're not, not actually believing the truth of what God's word says about God's grace that's extended to us through Christ. Look at the verse again. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
that is a, I mean, there's, there's sometimes this, this, I can't believe what I did, is we haven't applied the work of the cross to that yet. And I'm not talking about, okay, I sinned, oh well, just move on, you know, the blood covers everything, and we just act kind of cavalier and presume on God's grace. What I'm talking about is, you know you've sinned, it's been brought to the cross, and you're not believing that God is really as good as he says he is, right? And so that's the, the, the proposition I'm trying to make to you. Sometimes we don't actually believe that God actually forgives as fully and freely as he actually forgives. And a lot of times we, we, we don't think that because we kind of think we deserve forgiveness. And we kind of walk around with this idea that God has saved us or forgives us because we are intrinsically worth it. The truth is he saves us and he forgives us for the glory of his name. For the exaltation of his character. Now, praise God, we get to benefit from that, right? Amen? Amen. So, I love it. He says that there's the righteousness of God. By the way, at 16, I can tell you right now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I would implore you, today's the day of salvation. Today's the day. Why are you putting it off? Why are you scared that people make fun of you? Why are you scared to follow him? It, you, you've, it, you're, you're, messing, you're messing up life, my friend. Here's the great thing that happened for me at 16. It's called the glorious exchange. My sinful life, I became a believer at 16. So let's just say that maybe bare minimum, I had 16,000 sins on my record, right? But, you know, man, I was 16. So there was probably more than 1,000 sins that year, right? <laughs> Anybody remember that age? So um, all the 16-year-olds feel guilty. Right? So, but I can tell you this. When I became a follower, what I understood was Jesus took the wrath of God in my place, took my unrighteousness, and on the cross, a glorious exchange happened, right? That's why Jesus didn't stay dead. He couldn't stay dead. He offered up his righteous life, and there's a glorious exchange. My sin for Jesus' righteousness. That's what happens at salvation. When you become a follower of Jesus, there's this glorious exchange. Your sin for his righteousness. So sometimes we just don't really don't believe that God's grace is really as true as what the scriptures say it is. Romans 8. By the way, just a side, go to Romans 8. Just a little side note. You want a diagnostic? If, if we really believe God's grace is as good as it is, I'll give you a secret how to test it in your life. It's a secret. But if I say it, you can't tell anybody. Are we all agreed? If I tell you, you can't tell anybody, right? Here's how you know. That you really believe his grace is as good as the scriptures say it. You ready? I don't know if y'all ready. I'm not going to tell you. Go verse 20. I'm not going to tell you. Do you want to know, Reeland? Here's the deal. Here's how you can test it. If you fully and freely forgive others based on Christ's merit, I'll tell you, you probably actually believe it. But if we use the excuse of, I'll forgive when I feel like it. Or they don't deserve forgiveness. Then I would say, and guess what? You're probably a person who in your own life describes yourself as always angry at self because you actually don't believe God's gift of grace is fully and freely as it is. Because if you did, you would extend it fully and freely like that. Can I get an amen? Or can I get an oh me? I mean, one of the two. Look at Romans 8. So check this out. Go to verse 28. Just want to give you some more confidence how, how wonderful and how truth 
the grace of God is. Now, I want you to understand, don't walk around here thinking, oh, I just love it. Grace is so easy. This wasn't easy. I mean, there is nothing more frightening than the wrath of God being poured against you. You know, in the garden, Jesus was, I mean, if you read about Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me, not my will, but thine be done. I heard a preacher one time say, you know, I think Jesus was just scared of dying and, and you know, God understands it. And, and I was sitting there thinking like, man, I want to puke right now. Like there have been Christian martyrs go to the crawl, I mean, go to a burning stake and with not a bit of fear in their eyes. And you're telling me my Savior was afraid of dying? No. What he was contemplating was something much more gut-wrenching than just a physical death. The worst death a person can die is die a death where the wrath of God is poured out on them. No one comes back from that. But that's what my Jesus did. That's how wonderful his grace is. It's not cheap. People always think grace is cheap. It's not cheap. It actually costs the Savior quite a bit. Now look at verse 28 of Romans 8. Man, such beautiful stuff. If you're kind of like, you want a one verse to memorize, go to 2 Corinthians 5.21. You want kind of a passage to kind of anchor your soul? I mean, go right here. Um, now, this may seem silly and small. There's one interpretation. Typically, when you go to Scripture, most things are one interpretation, except sometimes in prophecy there may be a near and far. But most of the time, it's there's one interpretation but many applications, Right? And so I've applied this text in so many different ways. I've actually applied this in situations where there was something I needed to do for the Lord or that I needed to do in general, but I was, I was afraid that I would fail. I'm afraid that I would embarrass myself. Have you ever not done something in life because you're afraid you're going to embarrass yourself? Like, as a father, have you ever wanted to pray with your kids, but you're afraid you'd sound stupid, so you just don't? Or maybe you've never read the Bible with your kids um, with your family and you want to start that, but you're afraid that, you know, you're, you know, everybody would just kind of like drop on the ground and start having, you know, like charismatic fits and stuff that you're, you're just embarrassed, right? So look at verse 20. I would take verse 20, th- this passage and go, hey, w- what am I waiting on? Look at this, verse 28. For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The grace that God is extending, he's actually extending it. Not only for his glory, but he's doing it to conform you to his son. He's forgiving you this continual forgiveness that you get in your life. Because part of it is conforming, he's conforming you to his son. This work that he's doing in your life, he's conforming us to his son. So that we would be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30. And those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified, declared righteous. Those whom he justified, he will also glorify. He's going to bring you to himself. Sometimes we just get this anger at self because we don't really believe that God's actually doing a work in our life. We think that, okay, I failed again right here and that's it. I just... I might as well just go ahead and give up on this whole Jesus thing because it's the fifth time I've, I've yelled at my wife. Right? And I would say, hey, friend, don't, don't give up yet. Right? Like, God's grace is trying to make something of you. Repent, confess, go back to him. There's still work to be done. But the work that God has started in justification, he will bring through to glorification. Verse 31. 
But what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For who indeed did not Jesus, uh, that God did not spare his own son, verse 32, but delivered him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The point is this. It's not that you get everything you want in life. It just means that if God would, if Jesus would suffer the wrath of God in our place, why would we think that the things in life that are happening aren't meant to conform us to his, to his image, right? Why would we ever doubt that God has good things planned for us? So, like, if you're driving down the road and you get a flat tire going to work one day, and you're thinking, like, ah, God's cursed me, that's it. Like, I, was, I mean, you know, people do that all the time. I mean, like, I mean, seriously. Like, things like that happen, they're thinking, God has surely cursed me. Have you ever, have you ever, I mean, that's happened, hasn't it? Like, flat, you get a flat, then you get a leak in your house, and it, it just feels like, cataclysm after cataclysm after cataclysm in the day, and you're just thinking, God surely has cursed me, right? Where's my spouse? Can they just tell me curse God and die like Job's wife, right? Where are they at? I would say, here's your justification, verse 32. That God did not spare his wrath against his son on your behalf is your anchor to say, I'm going to be okay. This situation is okay, but I'm going to be okay. His grace is is doing a work in me of conforming me to his image. Now, keep looking here in verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies somebody, declares them righteous. Verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather was raised and who is the right hand of God who intercedes for us. He's, he's interceding for us before the throne of God. Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And I would say even our own, our own kind of unrighteous self-condemnation. It says in verse 36, but it's written, for your sake we are put to death all day. We're counted sheep for the slaughter. No, we are more, in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other Created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God's love. One application, I mean, one interpretation, many applications. And I would tell you, what an anchor for the soul that we can. I mean, you'd be surprised in life how many things change when we start to go. There's nothing that's going to happen today that can separate me from God's love. So why am I afraid? Why am I worried? Why am I, the, the sin that I did yesterday, why do I believe that God can't forgive that, restore me, do a new work in my heart, that I can be conformed to his image? His grace goes that far. Now, don't think grace is just dismissing every bad behavior, but grace is not only forgiving, but empowering to live a new life in Christ. So sometimes when we have this self-anger, we don't really see God as the one who we're primarily sinned against. We're really just bemoaning that our circumstances didn't turn out how we still want them. We lost opportunity. Or we're not really believing the truth about what God's grace truly says. Number three, we could, not, we could be really in a form of what's called worldly repentance. Kind of a worldly sorrow. Um, a worldly sorrow. A, a worldly um, repentance. And oftentimes, I want to show you a picture here. If you could put it up here, Daniel. Um, I would call this really a form of kind of worldly penance that happens a lot of times in our life. Second Corinthians chapter seven. This should be familiar, but I want to point this out to you. Then I want to walk you through a, this picture. The author of this picture 
is me. I put this together years ago just to kind of draw kind of a distinction between the two worlds of a remorse, a sorrow that leads to repentance, and a sorrow that leads just to penance, right? Penance is where you actually try to solve it on your own through your own works, right? Y'all said that penance, right? If you come from a Catholic background, you understand penance, right? So look at second. Is this small? That looks a little bit bigger. I'll walk through it. If you can't see it well, then maybe you should go to the eye doctor. Okay. Second Corinthians chapter 7. Maybe it's a good time. Verse 8. Paul says this. For though I caused you, the Corinthians, sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, but only for a while. So Paul's like, I sent a letter. It brought conviction. It caused you sorrow. Ah, I didn't like sending you that letter, but I'm actually kind of glad I did. I re- I, and now I rejoice, verse 9, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made to have a godly sorrow so that you might suffer loss, that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Verse 10, for godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret. Godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret, right? A godly remorse leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world brings death, a worldly sorrow. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has brought in you, verse 11. What vindication of yourself, what indignation, you hate the sin. What fear, there's a newfound fear of God. What longing, there's a new longing for God. What zeal, a zeal for God. What avenging of wrong, you're making restitution for what you've done. Not penance, but restitution. Just a side note, if you sin against somebody um, and you and you say, I for, and, and you you know, say, like, will you forgive me? And they do. Sometimes you got to, there's restitution that you need to make, right? You need to make it right. Now, um, I put this chart together several years ago. And maybe I can, man, that one looks a lot better, guys. But let's walk through it. I'm going to cheat because I have it nice and big blown up on my page. What a hypocrite I am, right? For accusing you of your eyesight. (laughs) So the left side, I would say, if you've kind of, if you're thinking like, Lord, am I fitting into a godly sorrow that's leading to, to repentance, a a godly remorse is leading to repentance, you're going to see it indicative of the left side. If that, if, if you really have more of a worldly sorrow that, that you, you wonder, is this leading to repentance? It, it, you'll find it really leads to penance a lot of times. And, and here's what it, the difference, right? This is how you can kind of know left side, I would say, this is more of a godly sorrow leading to repentance. The right side is a worldly sorrow that, and really, it's leading to penance. And it's really hard for everybody else to see because people sometimes go like, I've changed. Look, I'm doing different actions, right? But there's some internal things that aren't right. So let's compare and contrast it, right? So look at the right side. Do you see A, God-focused, right? Everybody see that? All right, just think left side good, right side bad. Look at the difference. When there's a godly sorrow, it leads to a repentance that is God-focused on the left side. On the right side... Very man focused. Very man focused. Then B, it's faith focused. Focusing in faith on the finished work of Christ. B, it's more focused on good works, on the things you've done. C, 
Mercy is received. But see, when there's a worldly sorrow, judgment is received. D, there's an inward change leading to an outward change when there's a godly remorse that leads to repentance. When it's worldly, there's a temporary outward change with no inward change. E, a person is humble and broken before the Lord. E, a person is prideful, and you can tell it you can tell it by the way they act. Especially they'll do things like this. They'll demand that people forgive them. F, there's a continual dependence on Christ. And then on the right side, there's a continual dependence on self. G, that person found salvation. But G on the right side, there's no salvation found for this person. H, it's God's way of atonement. H, you'll see this is really man's way of atonement. I, it leads to joy and peace. Then on the right side, I, it leads to misery. This is just, by the way, just a self-inward diagnosis of the heart. That when we're repenting of sin, and we are just miserable, right? Like we're miserable that we can't have that sin anymore. I don't care what outward actions we might be doing. We, we We have a worldly sorrow. Something changes. When there is a godly sorrow leading to a godly repentance, there is a change, and there's this joy. I mean, the actions have changed, but inwardly there's a joy and delight in the Lord that's different than what it was before. Look at Jay. Leads to filling of the Holy Spirit. No Holy Spirit or is far from the sinner. K, focus on what God has done. There's a lot of focus on what God has done when there's a godly repentance. But K... Focus on what man can do. L, it compares sin to God's holiness. When there's a godly repentance, when there's a worldly sorrow, compare sins to other people's sins. That's an easy one to see. If you're wondering, like, have I really repented? Well, then you'll just see your sin in light of God's holiness, like Isaiah did in chapter 6. If it's kind of like, yeah, I know my wife and I are going to have problems. I know my husband and I are having problems. But man, you should see what he's doing, right? That's a worldly sorrow. You're not really repenting. You're comparing your righteousness to his unrighteousness. M seeks Christ, seeks out a priest or a pastor. They'll be like, what, Nick? You saying we can't come talk to you? No, but I'm saying this. The first person you got to seek is Jesus. N grieves over sin, what a sin has done to Christ, grieves over what sin has done to them, Right? Remember the difference I said, this self-anger thing? Like just grieving over what you've lost? Really, it's really, are you grieving over what our sin has done to the Lord? Oh, there's a heart change. There's no heart change. P, you'll see fruit of the Spirit. P, on the right side, you'll still see the lust of the flesh. You'll still see that come out when there's a worldly sorrow. Q, you'll see joy. On the right side, Q, you'll see guilt. R, freedom on the left, bondage on the right. S, an awareness of your weaknesses. Then S, on the right side, you'll be deceived about your strength, right? You'll make these proclamations that like, I'm a different person. I'd never do that again, right? Where the person on the left would go, but for the grace of God, like I fear. T, trust in God for a heart to repent. Trust in self-goodness to repent. person who walks in a godly a, a godly sorrow and a, a true repentance. They, they trust God for the grace to not go back. But the person who is walking in a worldly 
they trust in their own goodness, you know, and want to declare to everybody just how good they are. And in fact, are more concerned about people understanding how good they are than really more worried about how far they fall short of God's standard of holiness and righteousness, and thus they can do nothing but run to Jesus. Okay, number four. Okay, you can take that off, Daniel. Or do y'all want to, you want to keep this up or take it off? Keep it up? Okay. I, I don't want to hurt your eyes, right? I care about your eyes. I care. I care about your heart. I care about your eyes. All right, number four. Look at Revelation 12.10. How y'all doing? Y'all still locked in? Y'all okay? Man, I can't wait till uh, we get a chance to eat a meal together today. And I can't wait to... Man, I've been praying yesterday, today, just like... Uh, I really need to be... I, I need to hear from our body of like what God's done this week. I, I can't wait to edify and take the Lord's Supper with you. Look in chapter 12 and verse 10 and... Man, if you want to maybe talk more about this, show up tonight at 5.30 for our millennium discussion. Maybe this text will come up. Maybe, maybe not. But there's a lot surrounding it. But I just want to lay out a, a true fact. Now, we can deal later. There's a theological debate of where Satan is at this point, what access he has to the throne. You know, that's another conversation. But I just, you know, for time's sake, I just want to point out something that's very true. Now, the... It says in verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, the kingdom of our God, and the authority of Christ have come, for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, he who accused them before our God day and night. So Satan is the accuser. So I'll tell you this, sometimes we're dealing with this self-anger, right? It could be a theological issue of we don't really view God's holiness right, we don't really view his grace right, there might be kind of a, a worldly sorrow that's not leading to a, a godly repentance. But then also, we, we might believe Satan's lies. Satan might, Satan might be accusing us. And we might be believing the lies of Satan, the accuser. The accuser, Satan would say such things as, God didn't really forgive you of that. Or he would say such things as, there's no way his grace can ever deliver you from that sin. We believe lies. We'd start seeing ourselves. We believe lies such as, you're not saved. There'd be no way. There'd be no way you ever said that if, if you actually love God. The accuser. So sometimes it could be Satan's accusations. Number five, and go over to James 1. Sometimes we could be unaware of the depth of our sinful nature. I think this is one of the most surprising things. When I became a follower of Jesus, I was unaware. Um, I mean, bless my heart. Oh, that's the southern, like, bless your heart when you're ignorant. I can remember being a new believer in Christ, 16, and, man, studying the Bible like crazy that summer and going to school that year. And there was this, this zealous but prideful heart that still needed to be changed where it was kind of like Satan's a fool. Lord, bring him on. I'll destroy him and everything this year, right? Like, bring it on, Lord, whatever it is. I love you so much that how could I ever sin against you? You understand that kind of idea? Um, what do you think happened? <laughs> so I wasn't aware of something and I remember that year being a follower of Jesus like loving Jesus man loving Jesus and some of the things I got into that first year being a Christian man it was horrific things I actually never gotten into before Christ like now being a follower of Christ baptized loving him 
opening up the Bible every morning and every night and every afternoon, but still sinning like a pagan, right? Just, and I can remember, like, thinking to myself, like, I can't believe I did that. Like, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you did that. I, I can remember that happening so many times, like, like, going to the pig slop and going like, I will never do that. That was the worst buffet meal ever. Only to the next day go back to the pig slop buffet. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And I just got so shocked that I would keep doing that. And I think there was something I hadn't been taught yet, that I still had a sinful nature and that it it runs deep and strong and hard. It doesn't run deeper and stronger and harder than God's grace, but it does run pretty deep and strong and hard. I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of the depth. That's why sometimes when we're dealing with this like self-anger, we're kind of thinking like, I can't believe I did that. I cannot believe that I went that far. There's no way. I can't believe I did something like I've had men who have been on like business trips who have have never cheated on their wife. They go on a business trip and like they go and they have a little bit too much to drink. And before you know it, they have some kind of weekend business trip adultery. And you'll see these men like they're just like on the floor thinking, I, I can't believe I did that. And what happens sometimes is the problem is they didn't, they believe they were better than what they really were. They really understand how deep indwelling sin goes. It, it, isn't taking a, it isn't taking a siesta or anything of that nature. It's always coming back and it wants its territory back. That's why in 1 James, well actually just James, there's no 1 James. It's James, it's 1 James. It says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are carried away and enticed by their own. What does your scripture say? His own desire, his own lust, his evil desire, his own epithemia in the Greek. It's your your own sinful desires, right? I think sometimes when we're dealing with this, I'm so angry that I did that, I can't believe it. Yeah, you probably just don't realize how deep your indwelling sin actually goes. Therefore, every day we have to be aggressively pursuing Jesus. Indwelling sin wants to, it's kind of like this. If you're on a, if, if you're on if you're on the in a car, every day you have to be pushing the gas because indwelling sin is like an 18-wheeler behind you. And this is an 18-wheeler that's going downhill in the Colorado mountains, right? And that baby lost its brakes a long time ago. And anytime you don't put your foot on the gas, that 18-wheeler that's lost its brakes, it's out of control, it's coming for you. That's indwelling sin. We always think that sin takes a back seat or that we actually beat sin. Like, no, it, it just keeps coming. So you've got to press the gas because indwelling sin doesn't have any brakes. It's going full speed ahead. So last I would say this. There could be a lack of trust in God's sovereignty. Go to Genesis 50. I cannot tell you how many times a week I talk about this passage. Talk about Joseph's life. It's a template for so many things. But sometimes when we're dealing with like the self-anger, we've talked about some of the theological things, but I just want to make sure on the, on the ground we kind of understand something. There are sometimes things that have happened in life that God has a plan. Like sometimes God always has a plan. But God has a plan. He is completely in control of all things. You don't need to get caught up in the minutiae details of that as you go about life. Just obey what he says to do. 
But I want you to know this. In the overall grand scheme, God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. That even when things look bad, God is working a beautiful picture in the end. It's like a tapestry. You're that little kid that can only see the bottom of grandma's tapestry, but there's a beautiful picture that she's making on the other side. But up to your view underneath, as grandma's stitching that tapestry, it looks like a convoluted mess. God always has a sovereign plan of what he's doing. I love Genesis 50, verse 20. Here's what Joseph, who, mind you, his brothers sold him into slavery. I'm just sorry. I don't think any of your siblings have ever done anything that dastardly, right? So your siblings may be mean to you, but they're not this mean. So he says in verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me. He acknowledges that something bad has happened. They've done something bad. And by the way, when you look back at Joseph's life, wasn't he a little bit of a tattletale, right? I mean, but in the end, what's he really focused on here? That God's in control and has a good plan. Look what he says. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to do what has happened this day to keep many people alive. He became head of the food source, saved Egypt from famine, saved, saved the, the Mediterranean region from famine. Amazing thing. Saved the children of Israel from famine. Brought the children of Israel to fulfill God's purposes by bringing them into Egypt and later delivering them out, preparing them as a nation for God's holy purposes. I mean, like, so get this. Sometimes there are these things in life where we go, I wish I would have said no to this five years ago. And it wasn't that it was necessarily sinful or not sinful. I'm not dealing with sin. I'm talking about just you had some tough decisions to make and you made it, right? We bought this house, and this house has, you know, uh, this house is one of the many houses in our areas. It just happens to be the inferior copper. Anybody got those houses right? The inferior copper, and leaks have sprung all over the place. So, like, there's this anger, like, man, I can't believe that day. I should have I should have never signed for this house. We should have never put an offer. And we're not dealing with sin or not sin. We're dealing with something neutral. Sometimes when, like, or you buy a car, you think, like, man, I've saved my money. I bought this car. I thought this car was going to run good. You get down the road, and the car that you bought for 2000 now is going to take $10,000 to fix, all right? That ever happened? And you're just angry. You're just like, I can't believe I made that dumb of a decision. It wasn't a sinful area. It was just you made the best decision you could in the moment. And we'll revisit it and revisit it and just get mad. And I would tell you, you have to do that, actually. God's sovereign. He's... The more you focus on God's sovereignty, the more that you'll be okay when those disappointing things in life happen. They didn't have to do with like sin. Like Joseph is saying, Joseph can even go, you actually sinned against me, but God had a plan. All the problems, he was framed for rape, all the evil things that happened to Joseph, he was able to come through because he believed God was sovereign. So even the people that you would have thought would have been angry, even the people who were afraid he would be angry towards them, his brothers in the text, he wasn't. He trusted that, that God was in control of all things. You know, that even sometimes the, the very, like this driving thing, of like, I can't believe we made that decision. And we're not dealing with sinfulness, just the decisions of life. I can't believe I chose this career path. I can't believe I went to school for this degree. Or, you know, all the things. If we just start coming to God's sovereign and he rules over all. And he's bringing all things to glorify himself. Like, you'll be okay. Now let's end with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Anybody know 1 Corinthians chapter 6? So in the end, here's where we got to run. We got to run back to the grace of Jesus, right back to the gospel message. We got to remind ourselves when we have this anger itself. We got to go back 
to step one. I had this quote that um, one of the books in the library called The Heart of Anger is a really great quote. It says this, It is vital in this instance that we, po- that we point the angry person away from himself as judge and forgiver to the one who is the only judge and forgiver, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one. Now, here's what's great. I love this text because I want you to notice how bad, how, how bad a sinner God saves. Look in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, right? The idolaters, adulterers. So we're already dealing with like red flag sins here. Nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. We're dealing, we're dealing with, with, with like red flag sexual sins. The ones that like moms typically hide their kids from, right? The ones that you don't even talk about in public just for just how embarrassing or just corrupting it can be. Notice this. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, meaning whether it be a verbal abuser, nor swindlers will inherit the king of God, kingdom of God. These are people that are, these aren't the people of people that inherit God's kingdom. But these kind of people who through the grace of Jesus Christ, come to faith in Jesus. Look what verse 11 says. But such were some of you. That's not you anymore. Such were some of you. But you've been washed. You were sanctified, set apart. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Here's what I love. Look at all these, I mean, red flag, white hot kind of sins that like seem to describe the worst in humanity and even god's grace extends that far to say and such were some of you that's not you anymore i think sometimes as christians we got to remember all this anger itself at times we got to remember like that's not what we are anymore like we're not that person anymore such were some of you we're we keep revisiting the past instead of actually revisiting the cross worship team once you come up here and we're going to sing a song, and, and I, think, I think we revisit the past so much instead of revisiting the cross. And here's what I love. The Lord, the Lord has got us. You stand to your feet. We're going to sing together. The Lord has got us. Um, we're actually going to change a little bit. We're going to, we're going to sing that song um, that we sang, He Will Hold Me Fast. And I want you to remember as we sing this song, this is what we can do. Hold on to Jesus. Hold on to his character. Stop looking at yourself. We can't look at ourselves. We got to look to him. We're going to sing this song again. I think it'd be good for our souls in light of this message. And then we'll, we'll set up our time to edify and eat and, and have communion together. Would you pray with me? I'm so thankful that it's not us that's holding you. It's you that's holding us. So we have a place to run when we deal with the regrets when the, we deal with the decisions we've made in life and we keep revisiting it. Lord, let us take it to the cross. Let us confess our sin. Let us trust your sovereign hand. Let us not exalt ourselves, but let us exalt you. Help us in this time for your good name. Bring someone to Jesus who's here, who's never bowed the knee. May they get what I got at 16, what many of us in this room have already have.
Christ in us, the hope of glory. Bless our time as we sing back to you in Jesus' name. Amen.